Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your playground bully and backseat driver. Give me your lunch money. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic, with no lunch money, just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Give me your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No. Today's quote is by Elizabeth Foley. The most beautiful discovery true friends make is that they can grow separately without growing apart. Last week, we looked at the earliest stages of friendship. Today, we delve into what happens to friendships in school-age kids. A lot of people develop their best friend during this age. So how does someone become a best friend? It's an application. It's an application. (laughs) There's a really long application process. Is it multiple choice? Yes. And then interviews, right? Behaviorally based interviews. (laughs) Natalia Brooks summed it up very well. She talks about four levels of friendship. Strangers, pretty much everybody you haven't met yet. Associates, folks that you know in context of different places. Friends, these are people who have gone beyond the specific place where you usually meet them and are willing to interact with you in lots of different places, share more trust, more connections, and then best friends. And the difference between a friend and a best friend, at least for Natalia, She says, quote, our friends will share our smiles with us and our best friends will enhance our smiles even more. How does Natalia Brooks feel about having more than one best friend? So in in the stuff that I read from her, she didn't talk about having more than one best friend. If you have several super good friends, then one's not best. They're all better. Well, that's kind of my theory on it but not everyone agrees. And that's okay. It really has more to do with the definition of the word than it does with the friendship. If you feel that closeness, if you feel the trust that allows you to connect deeply and share deeply and heal deeply from interacting with that other person, then that fits at least my definition of a best friend. So you agree you could have more than one best friend, but you disagree that the word suggests that you could have more than one best friend. Yes, because that's a grammar thing. If something is the best, it's singular. It's like you can't be most unique. (laughs) I like that you have argued your way into having both parts of this. Uh, And you haven't realized in 30 years that I'm a both and kind of (laughs) guy? It's almost 31 years. Kim, what do you think? Singular best friend? Multiple best friends? What's your opinion? Uh... It's an opinion. It doesn't have to be based in anything. Papa's being a pedantic well, that's fine. <laughs> I think that there are different categories. So I might have a best friend who understands dance company and what dance is like and that. And then I might have a best friend who understands like marine science and will geek out with me about sea cucumbers. Shout out, Leah. But I don't know that I have a singular best 
friend. I have a best friend in the categories of friends that I have. And of interests that you have. I like that. I think that's fun. Sure. I could categorize some friends in that way. Right. Because I have a bunch of friend groups that don't intersect at all. Yeah. And that's that's a perfect way. But in each of those groups, a singular person rises to the top. Right. And I don't know that it's super important if it's one or many. What's really important is the trust, communication, and what I call healing. So one of the things that best friendship allows is when I'm wounded, I can go here, feel safe enough, and heal from whatever the world has thrown at me. Ben just wants to be everyone's best friend, which is why he's trying to figure out if he can be that. No, I was, I've had this debate with many people, and I was curious where you two stood on it. I don't know where I stand on it. I probably agree with you, Kim. It's like best friend asterisk in this category. Best friend in this category. And the best actor is for rom-coms, for action films. For me, I'm thinking about the names that I have in my phone. And so I have like best friend Leah Orr and then number one best friend Alex. Ooh, number one best friend. I don't know where all of these, which I have weird names in my phone regardless, but. I'm thinking about arguments I've had, not arguments, play arguments with best friends, wherein they have argued over which one is the best friend. And so things like longevity of friendship come up or current depth of friendship, like current amount of interaction, somebody that I spend more time with now than another person. And I've always thought that that's an interesting that there's a certain amount of respect for a friendship, a best friendship that has lasted a long time over a best friendship that has a, you know, perhaps a deeper connection via shared interest. Well, if you really want to get crazy about this, there's an interesting argument about can your spouse be your best friend and is that healthy? What do you think? <laughs> I asked the question, why are you bouncing it back at me, Mr. Host? Because I'm, I'm the host. That's my job. <laughs> You're the only other one who has a spouse. You don't have to have a spouse to have an opinion. Is this a question that is something debated or talked about in psychology broadly? Or is it a book you read or something that you just think about? Um, I don't know if it's in psychology broadly. It is often in men's groups. So men struggle with friendship as adults. Often the older men get, the fewer people they have in their lives. And their lives narrow down to spouse and children, which is an interesting challenge. So for them, for men who are, say, in their 50s, having a group of other men generally, so that's people that can relate to them in a different way than their spouse can, assuming a heterosexual spouse, is thought to be, by some groups of folks, healthier than someone who relies on their spouse as both spouse, which is a special category of relationship, and best friend. Hmm. That puts a lot of pressure on that relationship. It's like the multiple relationships we've talked about before. Each of the ones you add on to it, the more complex and difficult it becomes. I think that having your spouse as one of the better friends, mm-hmm. that category just above friends but below the best friend, I think that's the ideal. Or if we're going with Kim's categories of friends, then your spouse can be a best friend in perhaps even several categories. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that you don't have other best friends. This doesn't answer the actual question, though. I'm just realizing, have we answered, how does someone become a best friend? (laughs) 
I get you've got a progression from stranger to best friend, but like, what is what is that shift for you, Don, between somebody who's a friend to a point where you would consider them like a best friend? The differentiation is the level of trust that I put in that person and the capacity for that relationship to be healing. Right. Yes, I remember that part. When I'm hurt, I can go to this person and share whatever I have to share and they will be present with me. So it has a lot to do with trust and vulnerability. Absolutely. Is there anything else or is it really just that's that's the factory that differentiates? That's how you know, oh, this person is a best friend. When I'm feeling hurt, I can go to them. And I wouldn't do that with this other person who's just a friend. Yes. Do you agree, Kim? I don't know that I have anything else to state to that as far as it's going to be how vulnerable you feel. And arguably, I would say it's reciprocal vulnerability. So you can be vulnerable with them and they can also be vulnerable with you is really what cues it into being best friend status because there's that level of closeness. Because there might be a couple of friends that you can be vulnerable to, but they aren't necessarily going to open up back to you. Whereas you might have that one friend who is willing to share back and it gives you kind of that deeper sense of connection. Yes, I agree with that. Because I think I have several friends who will open up to me and be vulnerable with me and may refer to me as their best friend, but I don't feel comfortable opening up to them, so they're one of my better friends. Rough. Eh, they know that. We've gone kind of down a rabbit hole of best friends, which I apologize for, but let's loop on back to childhood. What happens during the school years to friendships? The information I'm going to share is based out of Robert Selman's work on what happens with friendship through the school ages. Dr. Selman has been criticized because he thinks of friendships starting only when school starts. And there's good argument, as we did in our last session, to say that friendship actually develops earlier than that. Barring that, though, this information is actually pretty accurate and very helpful. So he breaks things down into some age ranges. And you'll notice as we go through The age ranges overlap, and they overlap because different children will develop at different rates. And we'll talk more about that at the end. So from ages five through nine, which is roughly kindergarten through fourth grade, uh, friendships are about what the child, what the, the individual can get from the other person. So they're looking to get needs fulfilled from the other person. At this stage, they'll understand turn taking So they have some sense of what the other person's perspective is. But what's challenging here is the child does not have the brain capacity yet to hold both perspectives simultaneously. That capacity is in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, and that part doesn't develop until much later in life. So they still have very little understanding of their impact on a relationship. So it's really easy for a kid in this age range to point at the other kid and say, they did this, they did that, but have very little understanding of what the kid did to the other person. They might even call someone's coat puffy. Yes. Do you know I was actually thinking about that story? Do you want to tell that story? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I can speak it all from my perspective of I once wore a down winter coat. Is that what those are called? That's exactly right. All right. So I once wore a down winter coat to school. And one of my little schoolmates decided to point at me and said, she's puffy. And everyone in class laughed. And I have never once worn a down coat since. 
That is true. That is very true. It hurt the relationships you had with several girls in the class. It did. Then I was only friends with boys. It was much better then. But it's interesting, a lot of bullying starts up in these age ranges. And part of that is this, I don't have the perspective of how this might hurt someone else. Over time, it might become more malicious and intent. But at younger ages, it can just be like, oh, this is what's in my brain. This is what I'm going to say without really that acknowledgement of, oh, this might hurt someone else. I will say that that person who called my coat puffy did apologize. It was several years later. And by several, I mean probably more than a decade. But (laughs) it came. They apologized when we talked about it. And it's hard to understand your impact on other people at all ages. That's a pretty common thread with folks. Would you say that these relationships in this age range kind of fall into that pleasure friendship category? Yes. That we talked about before? where it's all about getting something from the other person and not necessarily being aware of or willing to give anything back. Um, It's more being unaware that something needs to go back, that there's reciprocity yet. It's not necessarily unwilling because if the other person asks something of you, you might be willing to provide that. Hmm. But what happens is the kid doesn't connect those two things yet. Cool. Reciprocity comes in this next age group, somewhere between ages 7 and 12 roughly, That's second to seventh grade, just thinking about where they fit in the school systems here. So at this age, fairness is really important to kids. And you'll hear kids saying, that's not fair, or that is fair. That's a big thing for them. And so a quid pro quo mentality develops in a friendship. How much am I getting from you? How much do I give to you? These kids are very much by the rules. They're learning about rules. They're all about, you know, you got to do it the way you're supposed to do it. And they tend to be harshly judgmental, both of themselves and of others, when rules are broken. This reminds me of beach trip uh, board games and how we all used to get, and still do, really, really fed up with each other about, is that in the rules? That's not in the rules. You're cheating. And just how intense we were. And I mean, we are, we still are when it comes to board games about rules and making sure that the rules are followed properly. And our favorite phrases being, whip out that rule book. Where's the rule book? Yes. And so you guys never developed past seven to 12, huh? I said we're a little bit better. We've developed some. So one of the things that also happens in this group, in this age group, is in and out groups become common. This is a time when kids often create secret clubs that have strange rules that determine who gets to be in the group and who is out of the group. Luckily, this really doesn't last very long because it's incredibly damaging. Well, I would argue I clicks and that concept of an in-group last significantly longer than seventh grade. That, that's well into high school, sometimes even college. Sure, it can. So not everyone actually develops. This is another concept. Not everyone gets to move through all the different stages. And some people get stuck here, that the only way I can feel safe is to know that I am with this group, and because I'm with this group, you're with that group, ins and outs. We see this right now in uh, the social fabric of America here in 2020. Which group are you in? I think perhaps what you're saying about it not lasting long is sort of the 
arbitrary, strange, and secret rules that govern the groups. The groups evolve or devolve into having still rules, but very clear rules. I mean, Kim is right. Those types of groups absolutely exist in high school and beyond. And they're not, I don't think that's uncommon. I don't think that's people not developing. That's just humans forming tribes, which is what we've done for eons. Sounds like a good stuff for an episode sometime in the future. Yeah. So the key thing here, when you're looking at your kids who are in this age range, is helping them with communication skills so that they can navigate these difficult relationship seas. Oh no, we've taken the road trip to the ocean. We have. We're we're in one of those duck boats, yeah. (laughs) But it's really true. They have to figure out how to communicate with those other kids and also with you to get the support that they need as they're moving through all of this. And part of that is remaining open to their emotional needs, like we talked about last episode of wanting to hear what's happening and wanting to hear their struggles. A lot of bullying happens in grade school, and sometimes kids don't feel like they can open up to their parents or may even feel like their parents never experienced this type of thing. So remembering to stay open and receptive to what they're sharing with you and possibly even trying to stay in touch with all of the social media cues that are being out. Uh, Apparently, there is a new TikTok thing of saying, I ate pasta last night, and it's a suicide prevention phrase. So it has to do with a YouTube star who said something about like staying alive because you want to eat pasta one last time. And now it's a TikTok thing for kids who are feeling emotionally overwhelmed and are contemplating self-harm. So staying on top of all of the things like this that happen, I divulged and went left field. So That's okay, but that's actually an important part of this because when you're teaching the communication skills from a parenting point of view, you have to tolerate your child's distress instead of trying to fix it. And that's really hard. Stay with them with their sadness or frustration. Try not to fix it. Try to help them talk it through and come up with their own solution to what's going on. That's probably the hardest thing any parent has to do. That was hard for y'all, as, which I can't speak about your experience, but like when I was a kid and I was upset and, you know, I know mama wanted to fix things <laughs> and I'm sure you wanted to fix things as well. Wanting to fix things and acting on that are two different things. True. And what I tried to do is not act on that. There were times when I wanted to go take apart people who had interacted with you badly. All right, let's get back to... And I suppressed that, mostly. Mainly because I didn't need you in jail. I wouldn't have minded. In any case, the next stage from Selman's point of view comes around ages 8 to 15, so roughly grades 3 through 10. This is where sharing and caring starts to develop. Friends will help one another through problems. This is being able to see the other person's perspective. Compromise becomes a big part of the relationship. Truly caring about the other person's happiness emerges. So this is really an interesting thing. Up through at least the age of eight, and usually a little longer than that, kids are really focused on their happiness, getting their needs met. And stopping to think, how can I help someone else get their needs met, really evolves at this time. And when you can help a child do this, they become more compassionate both with themselves and with other people. So if you remember before, 
the judgment, the rule following was very much a harsh judgment of self or other. Here's where self-compassion and compassion for others begins to emerge for the kid. And hopefully you continue to let that grow over your lifetime. So there's a shift from scorekeeping, which was from the earlier stage, into favoring strength of the relationship, more connectedness on several different levels with several different activities. This is often the period where a best friend emerges, and they're connected at the hip. So often when somebody becomes a best friend, they're doing everything together. They go everywhere together. They do the same kinds of activities when it happens at this particular age range. This is when I had a best friend. I met Nathan in second grade. I don't think we actually were super close friends until later because I was friends with Will, remember? Yes, I do. Will and Nathan and I were all friends, but I think we both wanted to be best friends to Will. And I think he ended up being best friends with somebody else. I don't know. I don't remember. But Nathan and I ended up as best friends. And we were connected at the hip. Do you remember scheming? Yes. (laughs) I do remember scheming. Pretty much every Friday night we could possibly pull it off, we would try and convince either set of parents that we just absolutely had to have a sleepover. Just had to happen. No way around it. And the the game was to see how quickly, how many minutes it took to convince somebody's parents to drive one or the other of us to the other person's house. And I think I think the record is probably somewhere under 10 minutes <laughs> from point of, all right, I'm going to go ask to getting in the car to go. <laughs> <laughs> Basically had that, had that go bag always ready. <laughs> yep. And that's the kind of thing that happens uh, in this age range. This is also difficult because betrayal of these friendships can be devastating and difficult to overcome. That's what I ran into was third grade is when my best friendship fell apart. And, you know, I laugh about it as third grade being when everything changed and my life became doomed. But for me in third grade, I lost my two very close friends. The school bully moved into my classroom and just a lot of different stuff happened in third grade that wrecked over a lot of the relationships I had. We also went to England and I touched the water in Bath and Ben convinced me I was going to die. So lived a (laughs) cursed life since then. I don't remember that. (laughs) Regardless, I touched the water and Ben told me I was going to die. Didn't we all touch the water? Eventually. I don't remember that part. Well, and that actually happens between siblings all the time. So one last thing that happens in this, uh, if you if you do this really well as a parent, you help kids learn how to repair difficulties in relationships. Because kids get closer at this time and because they care about getting the needs met of the other person so happiness happens, there is still going to be problems, issues that pop up, difficulties that happen. And learning how to repair that, how to come back and say, hey, when this happened, I got hurt. And the other person say, oh, I, you know, I didn't want to hurt you, but I did. I get it. And figuring out how to repair it. Very powerful for learning for the rest of your life. So Selman talks about this last stage from ages 12 and up. And from his point of view, it goes through into adulthood. I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I will take it through the end of high school. At this age, emotional sharing becomes the core of the relationship. Emotions become much more important in the relationship, mostly because kids are actually becoming much more self-aware of their own emotions. That prefrontal cortex is developing. 
the executive functioning is becoming more complex, they're able to process these emotions better. Still not very well. Yeah, it really doesn't finish off until your mid-20s. By then, a lot of people have actually closed off learning about their emotions. And they've made decisions that become biases that create lots of difficulty later in life. Which is why you come to therapy at Azevedo Family Psychology and work with someone who specializes in working with young adults and learning our own emotions. There's the plug. All right. The early phases of a mature relationship also evolve here. So trust, support, commitment, often the elements that go with a romantic relationship begin to evolve in this age range. Caring about the other person's happiness evolves into actually helping one another discover what contributes to their happiness. So here, each of the friends can help the other person think about, well, what do you want to do with your life? How do you want your life to evolve? What things do you want in it? Which is a really powerful principle to have between two people. And it requires a lot of vulnerability and trust. The early stages of being able to understand your impact on the relationship also begins to emerge. And this is also powerful because forgiveness becomes more of an element in the relationship than it has been up to this point. Hmm. Seems legit. I kept thinking this seems really late for all these things to be developing, but then I remembered the range here is like somewhat larger. We're talking like age 12 and up. So, yeah. I mean, age 12 is not that late to be thinking about forgiveness or whatever. You know, mid-20s is a little late to be developing forgiveness. But some people do have to wait that long because it's not modeled to, for them as kids. I understand that, but I think we would all agree that that is like developmentally late. Yes. And it's not sure. necessarily that person's fault. Sure, but think of many of the people who hold grudges. That's true. And holding a grudge is, is not forgiving. I suppose, definitionally, that's true. (laughs) Also, emotionally and experientially. When you start to think about the number of people who hold huge grudges and have long hurts regarding other people and behaviors other people have engaged in, you can see how it's easy to get some of these developmental stages blocked off and not growing throughout your life. Hmm. So how do parents help their kids deal with all this? This is a lot of stuff to deal with. Well, like I just mentioned, parents will want to do a lot of modeling. You want to model being able to forgive your partner, the child, the child's siblings. You want to be able to create that environment where they understand how to interact and create these relationships. If possible, having your friends come over so that your kids can see how you interact with them. Ben and I missed this as children because, you know, Don doesn't have any friends. So there were never any parent friends over at the house, ever. We definitely did not go to the beach with Don's friend at all. Never. Not once. I learned all my socialization from the family dog. You know, that makes sense, Ben. (laughs) Explains a lot. Who was a very good teacher. (laughs) Creating an environment where your children can see you engaging with peers your age and see how you act amongst your friends. And know that you're always in the spotlight with your kids. They're always paying attention to what you're doing and they're learning from that. So if you don't want them doing a certain thing, look at what you yourself are doing. One of the hardest things, and Don mentioned this earlier, is listening without solving problems. I will say that 
I did not give my parents an easy run on that because I wanted them to solve my problems, but then I didn't want their answers. I wanted them to solve the problems, but I did want the answers. (laughs) Right. Well. Until I didn't. But most of the time I did. Yeah. No. I was like, give me an answer so that I can reject it and say that won't work. Um. So when you're listening to not solve a problem, you're paying attention to the content and the emotions. You want to reflect back what you're hearing and checking in. I'm hearing that you're upset. Is this right? Because they might not be upset. They might be any slew of other emotions. Your kids might come to you with actions that they've already done. Don't judge them for these choices. Ask them why they made them and what other options are there. You want to help them think critically through their behaviors and ask those open-ended questions like, help me understand, and how does that behavior help you, which is what I grew up on. (laughs) This twisted podcast has forced poor Kim to endorse the help me understand. Hey, I use it all the time in therapy. I just know that when I see a therapist, I have to let them know. If you ask that, I will shut down. I will not answer you. And I will say I cannot help you understand anything. So there. We're just we're just <laughs> broken, me and Kim. Just <laughs> broken, broken, just broken husks. It's hard growing up in a psychologist's house, I can just tell you. Yeah, you think your children are watching and learning. Your parents are watching and learning. (laughs) (laughs) So you also want to kind of act as a coach. Does that mean you blow whistles at them a lot? I mean... You can. I was going to say the Von Trapp family. I use those clickers for training with you two. So when you're acting as a coach, you want to help them explore their personal values and thinking through the different situations that they've experienced and the actions that they took kind of want to create almost a game plan so that they can see these are the things that are happening in my life. This is how I can balance them. Balancing friendships and school and schoolwork is also a different challenge. Or if they get engaged with sports or marching band, all of the different dynamics where time is being taken up and making sure that they're staying on top of schoolwork and coaching them in how do you stay friends with someone and maybe not be able to go to their house to sleep over every Friday. It seems like there's a lot of overlap between listening without solving problems and coaching, except that coaching involves a little bit of building a framework for solving problems. Right. But they're very similar. Like they both involve listening and helping the child think through on their own the situations they're in. And the main thing about this is not judging them for the information they're sharing with you. If you want your kid to be open and vulnerable with you and share the mistakes that they've made or the choices they've made that they don't feel comfortable with, you can't go and judge them for what they've done. Can you judge them for what they're planning to do? Well, so the whole judgment thing pretty much guarantees that the kid is going to stop talking to you, stop listening to you and do whatever they want. If you can manage to help them think through the possible consequences of the choices they're making, they will make the choice for themselves that fits for them. It may not fit for you as a parent, but it will fit for them. And this is a hard thing about parenting. Your children own their own life. You don't own their life. They own their life. Your job as a parent is to teach them personal responsibility the capacity to synthesize information, and 
being able to analyze the choices they have in any given situation. If you do that as a parent, you are highly successful. I was also just trying to think about, like with coaching, a lot of parents are concerned about underage drinking. And I was trying to remember what mama and papa did as far as coaching us around that. And I honestly don't remember. They teased us about it for a long time. They'd be like, oh yeah, you could have a, you could have just a sip of this beer at dinner time or oh, maybe you could have a small glass of wine and then just like never quite ever happened. That's how I remember it. I don't remember it at all, but you also went through that before I did. So it's possible I just learned from then, but... Well, you all also got lots of talks about how alcohol works in my family and that that is a dangerous road to walk on. That's true. And I was very uncomfortable with alcohol in situations for a long time probably till well as a you know law-abiding good boy i was skeptical of alcohol pre-21 and i don't know i don't know i don't know that i would have done anything differently as a parent in your place you probably did let me taste a beer or wine or something yeah you tasted red wolf at some point and i probably (laughs) hated it that's true i just remember it often coming up at like We'd be having like a nice dinner or something. So you, you and mama would be having wine, which was not super common anyway. And there'd be like, oh, maybe we'll let Ben have a glass of wine. You know, when I was probably what, like 16, 18? Yeah, never a glass, but you could have a sip. And so now when they come to arrest me because I've illegally provided alcohol to a minor. Um, Didn't you look it up and it like wasn't illegal because it's like in your own home or something? It wasn't illegal back then. (laughs) Well, we'll see. After I'm arrested and you come visit me in jail, we'll figure this out. You know, one of the things you guys probably don't remember is that I did talk to you about the effects of alcohol in our family. And you saw some of that firsthand with your grandmother. Right. Yeah. I remember that. I remember those conversations. My memory of Va is rather tainted with the smell of scotch. So, like, I remember those conversations, but, like, I don't really remember... Well, and even as a rule-pushing bad girl, I didn't get into drinking until I was in college. And I think I only started drinking when I went to Ireland, and it was legal for me to drink at 20 there. And impossible to avoid. Also almost impossible to avoid. But like, I don't remember us having to have any serious conversations about misconduct in that regard. Because I think, I think you guys learned the information, synthesized it for yourself, and made your choices instead of making my choices. Right. I was just trying to think of something something that would have been said in the coaching section, because that's the number one thing I hear from parents in the teenage years, is how do I keep my kid from drinking? And it's not keep them, it's coach them on how to make good decisions. Right. So part of that is helping them, helping them understand what the effect of alcohol is, what the effect of marijuana is, what the effect of any of the drugs are helping them understand why kids want to do this and helping them develop the strength to use other things like music, dance, art, sports, lots of other things. Volunteer work. Volunteer work to get the same effects that you're looking for in drugs. So if you know how to process your emotions, by the way, you're much less susceptible to becoming addicted to drugs. Most of the people who become addicted to drugs are trying to run away from their emotions because they don't know what to do with them. Fair. Also, as a parent, you will want to help teach your child emotional literacy. 
you want to understand words to describe your own emotions, check out our resources page. I will post the big wheel of emotions that I have, which is incredibly useful. And the bigger your vocabulary is around these words, the more tools you're handing your child to be able to describe what's happening for them. And reflecting with your child. So making sure you let them know like, hey, I'm experiencing this right now so that they can see that and they can see what your body language looks like when you're upset, when you're happy, when you're anxious and giving them the ability to witness and move through it. When a child expresses an emotion in a way that you don't particularly like, acknowledge the emotion, but also set a boundary. When your child is angry and upset and wanting to throw that temper tantrum, tell them like, okay, but this is not the space for that. Let's go to the pillow room and beat on the pillow that's overly large and unnecessarily heavy. Sure. But it's also like if your kid gets angry and they kick the wall and make a hole, which is a pretty typical kind of thing that happens. To say to them, I get you're really angry and let's talk about the anger, but breaking the wall is not okay. And since you broke this, you're going to need to fix it. So I'll work with you. You learn how to fix it, that kind of stuff. There are consequences to your behavior, but set the boundaries. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to break things when you are. Yes. Now, of course, if you set that boundary, you have to live by it. So the next time you get angry and you punch a door, probably not sending the right message. (laughs) Though it does reflect what your child is doing. So your child has seen you get angry and punch a door, then got angry and kicked the wall. Yes. They're mirroring your behavior. So pay attention to what you're doing when you experience these big emotions. Yes. This week, we covered friendships through the school years. We talked about what it takes to be a best friend and the different characteristics of friendships across ages 5 to 18 or so. Finally, we gave parents some tips for helping their kids through these things, like modeling, listening, and coaching. Hopefully, you learned something useful. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, we could really use your help. We need some support and feedback from you to know what you're interested in, what you like, and what you would prefer we change. It's hard to stay motivated without the reciprocity of your voice in the conversation. So if you feel like you've moved from a stranger to an acquaintance and would like to become a friend of the podcast, talk to us. Send us an email at questions at afpsych.com. Until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.